Put down the remote, set your phasers to stun, and pick up that paperback. You do have books in the 24th century. Welcome to episode one of Reading Trek, a Star Trek book club podcast, a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Network. My name is William Conlon. And I'm Marty Ali, and we're your hosts. For those of you who are new to the podcast, and since this is episode one, that's all of us, we are a Star Trek book club podcast working through the expanded universe one novel at a time. Although we do encourage you to follow along with the reading, this podcast was designed as a way to give all fans a way to journey through the expanded universe together, even if you haven't read the books. If you're reading along with us, revisiting an old favorite, or if you just want to know more about the expanded universe, this is a podcast for all Star Trek fans. With that said, let's get into today's selection. That's the book. I know, it's a book. The book. Today we're going to be focusing on Discovery, Desperate Hours by David Mack. All right, so Marty, where in the Trek timeline does Desperate Hours take place? The question isn't where we are. It's when we are. Desperate Hours takes place in May of 2255, one year before Battle of the Binary Stars, and one year after The Cage. Ah, so we've got uh, Discovery and the original series. Well, you know, um, Memory Beta is an incredible resource for the expanded universe. Can you uh, read us the summary that Memory Beta gives us for Desperate Hours? And uh, this is a black alert. There are spoilers ahead. Black alert. Black alert. Previously on Star Trek Discovery. With Ashenzo's first and second officers being promoted to another ship, Lieutenant Michael Burnham is made acting first officer ahead of science officer Saru, who will serve as acting second officer. It is up to Captain Georgiou whether or not she will retain the position. Vicenzu then receives a distress call from the colony on Sursa 3. Drilling operations have disrupted an ancient alien spaceship, dubbed the Juggernaut, which has dispatched probes to attack the colony. The Shenzhou hurries to assist them, but Starfleet sends the Enterprise with orders to destroy the Juggernauts, even though doing so will destroy the colony. Burnham proposes she and Spock enter the Juggernaut to try and find a way of disabling it. Meanwhile, Saru discovers that the colony leaders hid evidence of an extinct civilization that once inhabited the planet. They will face charges if everyone survives. Burnham and Spock pass a number of challenges and at one point have to mind meld in order to remain in contact during one test. The Juggernaut's computer announces that by passing the test, they have proved themselves worthy to join the long-extinct Turanian Empire. Those who refuse the offer or fail the test are wiped out. As the planet's original inhabitants were, those who refuse the offer or fail the test are wiped out, as the planet's original inhabitants were. Burnham accepts the offer, but the Juggernaut continues to attack the Enterprise and Shenzo, deeming them aggressors. The two ships manage to damage the Juggernaut enough for Spock and Burnham to overload their phasers by key systems, disabling it. The colony will be evacuated, pending an archaeological examination, although some may be allowed to return later. Georgiou confirms Burnham as first officer with a promotion to lieutenant commander. The end. All right, so that leads us to our first segment, which is Place the Bookmark. We're going to talk about standout characters, plot, and writing moments. So, Marty, what were some of the standout moments for you in Desperate Hours? I definitely found the TOS uniforms to be a standout moment. Um, We can talk about those a little bit later. Um, And we got um, number one from the original Star Trek pilot. We got to know her name and her race, and what she's like, uh, Commander Una. How about you? 
Yeah, uh, for me, the relationship between Saru and Una was my favorite part. I, I thought their away mission together was the best part of the book. I mean, I loved the whole book, but that was just, I mean, you could see... You could see in your head, you could see Doug Jones and Majel Barrett having those scenes together, yeah. and you could hear the voice so well. Yeah, it was great. I love that that relationship that they forged. Any other first thoughts? Yeah, I thought the I thought the plot was was really well grounded within the Trek universe. I mean, David Mack has a incredible history with Star Trek. He's done over thirty novels. He's written two uh, two episodes of Deep Space Nine, including Starship Down, which I think is a, a highlight episode of the series. So he certainly knows where to. Uh, put the Trek voice and he did a great job with it. Um, my standout overall was all the pairings. You had an incredible melding for lack of a better word of, waka, um, waka. yeah, of um, TOS and discovery people, which uh, I thought was just incredible. Yeah, it was great. The, the pairs that they gave like Pike and Georgiou, uh Saru and Una, Michael and Spock, they were all really well done. Um, and then you had the medical officer and the dentist. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And then, of course, having the uh, the doctor from the uh, original TOS pilot in there as well, who was kind of a precursor character to McCoy. Uh, so I just thought that was that was interesting. Uh, you know, for somebody who doesn't necessarily know the menagerie or the cage, as it later was called in uh, TOS. Uh, there's just a lot of layers in there, and it makes you want to go back and watch those again. Yeah, absolutely. Makes you want to join it all. All right, let's move on to bookmark the page, since we're talking about characters and plots now. I mentioned the dentist already, but how about that character? Wants to go on his first away mission so he can get pulled up in rank and then gets taken hostage. Yeah, and I love the conclusion of his character, too, that he's the one that ends up going crazy on, on the yeah. uh, captors. That's great. <laughs> what do you have uh, for standout character moments? Well, you know, I, I think Philippa really owns this entire novel, and considering this came out just prior to the premiere of Discovery, I think this gave audiences uh, an idea of what to expect from Philippa Georgiou, and it, it makes you see right at the beginning, why in, uh, I believe it's episode five, she's listed on a computer screen as being one of the most decorated officers in Starfleet history. You see right away that she is, yeah, she's totally competent. She's got an even head on her. She's, you know, even more um, well-balanced than the, than the captain of the Enterprise. Yeah, the captain of the Enterprise, Captain Pike at this time, he felt a little flat to me. I felt like he was butting heads with Georgiou, and I know the situation was tense given his orders and what was at stake. I mean, literally, like, the lives of everyone in the neighboring systems was at stake. But I don't feel like he would have gone to such great lengths to try and prevent uh, Georgiou from resolving this peacefully. Yeah, and, and I, th I think from a writing standpoint, he obviously provided a great foil for her and, you know— kind of cornered her in from all ends and shows you that kind of grace under pressure that she's that her character is known for i think also the way that she interacts with saru and burnham is a lot of foreshadowing to the events of vulcan hello and battle of the binary stars so that's the 
I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm a Georgiou fan through and through, and I hope we get to see a lot more of her. I know we're going to in the future novels, but I wouldn't mind seeing more of her even on Discovery Mirror Universe. Yeah. Um, well, seeing how we've already seen her in Discovery, she's great. Spoiler alert. Black alert. Black alert. Plot points. I thought the journey to the core was very Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the the tests they had to pass, what did you think about the technology in the Juggernaut, the haptic feedback, and the kind of working in tandem? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And and again, just like you, the first thought that I had was uh, a combination of the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark and that whole yeah. um, sequence in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when he has to get through the Grail Quest. Uh, exactly. Especially, especially yeah. the ones where they're actually on, like looking at the symbols on the ground. It's almost taken right out, which I think is actually a great homage to uh, some of my favorite films. So big fan of that. Uh, I, th- I I thought the... Um, idea of them having to work in tandem was really intriguing and of course it's set up for the great plot point of them having to mind meld at one point so you have this truly all right let's let's talk about this mind meld for a while it ties into lethe almost directly not only lethe but journey to babel because then you find out a lot about the history that spock has with his parents versus the history michael had with spock's parents yeah, not only that, and it also has uh, a great reference to the animated series with Yesteryear and Spock losing his pet out in the desert. I have not watched any of the animated series, but I think I might have to pick up Yesteryear to see how that ties in. Yeah, there's a few uh, there's a few voices out there crying, I Chaya, right now. <laughs> My apologies, I'm, I haven't seen it. Well, it's definitely worth a viewing. All right, uh, what have you got? Any other standout moments? You know, I think that's it for me. Uh, I uh, the stuff down on the planet with the governor. Um, it, it it's interesting because some of it some of it fell a little flat for me. I felt like she kind of went from zero to sixty from being a respected governor to a just going to mention that she's just nuts. Yeah, I mean, how do you get to that position and then go crazy so quickly? I kind of get why why david mack wrote her like that just to give like that extra little like you know crunch of plot there that extra tension but then at the end of the novel it was it was kind of resolved very quickly it was very anticlimactic that that particular plot thread i also i kind of wanted to get a different uh, uh, not different but more of a resolution from the miners because they were the absolute beginning of the novel and we never really saw what happened with them so i felt like i i i was given something that i had to be emotionally invested in at the beginning and never saw what they ended up doing so you know maybe they'll come maybe they'll come about in another novel at some point in the future yeah maybe we'll see them pop up again moving into highlight the text what did we learn from the reading what i took away from it is we learned about the terranian empire which kind of seems like it was a um, ancient version of the Dominion. Did you get those vibes off of them? Yeah. Oh, now, you know, I didn't get that in the first reading, but now that you say that, it automatically clicks that that sounds very similar to it. What I got out of the Terranians was the idea that, you know, there's a cause and effect to everything that you do, and the effect could be seen literally thousands of years into the future in this case it's millions of years in the future so you think about you know 
a world that we live in now with drones where people can go off and do things without being there. They sent this drone out and nine million years later, it's messing up people's lives. Yeah, it totally is. Do you think that some of the technology that we create now is going to end up thousands of years from now just causing chaos? Like the Voyager shuttle in the um, the motion picture? Uh, exactly. There's there's V'ger in the motion picture, and I don't know the episode name, but there's the episode in Voyager where they um, they find the uh, NASA uh, exploratory vessel and they use the technology and it ends up causing a nuclear war. So I think um, that's one of the things that I always like about Star Trek, that it's very aware of present times and the dangers of misusing the technology that we have. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Marty, uh, let me ask you, do you think the uh, writer succeeded in conveying the voices and style of uh, Star Trek? For the most part. I think, again, Captain Pike was a little weak in this one. And I wonder if that's just because we haven't had a lot of screen time with Pike, at least the prime timeline Pike. We get a little bit more in the Kelvin timeline, but I mean, this is essentially prime timeline Pike. Try saying that five times fast. Yeah, when I read this, I uh, I had you know Jeffrey Hunter in my head as I was thinking about yeah. it. But Me then too. when you and I were talking about this book uh, right before we started this, you mentioned that this Pike seemed more like Kelvin to you, and yeah, that that makes a lot of sense because I felt like um, that Pike was a little more uh, by the book, whereas the Cage Pike is kind of like Kirk, kind of a, a risk taker and boldly going. So I feel like um, he would have been a little different in this situation. Yeah, I think I think had this been made into an episode with Kirk instead of Pike, I think things would have gone very different. Yeah, and I think this also um, is interesting uh, to look at Philippa's position because she is taking Starfleet orders and she's abandoning them and she's pursuing her own course. And this is, of course, one year before the Battle of the Binary Stars when Michael Burnham does the exact same thing to her, only that results in a mutiny. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. What did you think of the relationship between Georgiou, Saru, and Burnham? I love the the like cattiness that Michael Burnham gives to Saru. And it really helps explain like the way they are in um, the Vulcan Hello. She's so catty. Yeah, I kind of get a um, a projection of her relationship with Spock onto Saru in some ways, you know? Like the brother she never, not the brother she never had, but the brother, the brother she, she did have. never like play with, you know? Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that compounds almost when she then has to deal with Spock directly. You know, she was probably thinking she would right. never have to see him again, and suddenly they're on an alien ship actually mind-melding and seeing each other's memories. And and I have to do a, a hats off to the writer on the way that he wrote the mind-meld sequence. I love that he kept interspersing the names so that you think you're seeing a Burnham memory, but it's really Spock. and You really feel like you're as confused as they are learning about each other. Yeah, it was it – was, that was really well written. That's, hats off to you, David Mack, if you're listening. Well, you never know. He liked one of our tweets earlier, so we hope he's <laughs> listening because we really, really enjoyed this book. What did you think about the way he kind of corrected Discovery's canon inconsistencies, let's call them? Yeah, you know, uh, as you've maybe heard from my other one other podcast appearance as of now on the Tricorder Transmissions on Disco Trek, I don't especially care that much about the visual 
inaccuracies. I'm not a purist. I, I just, you know, love Trek in any form that I can get it. So I have no real complaints there. I think it was a nice, uh, you know, a nice hat tip again to uh, talk about the uniforms and uh, give us, you know, throw us a little bit of a bone. Why don't you talk a little bit more about what they said in there regards to the uniforms on the Enterprise versus the Shenzo? Oh, well, David Macrats. Gant and his team from the Shenzo wore dark blue Starfleet utility jumpsuit uniforms with black trim, while the Enterprise team sported pale gold or light blue jerseys over black trousers, a new uniform style that so far had been issued exclusively to the crews of Starfleet's vaunted Constitution-class starships. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they uh, stated that, and then also talking about the captain's quarter concept not existing on Constitutions. Yeah, unlike many other types of starships in the fleet, Constitution-class vessels had no ready rooms for their captains, hmm. which is interesting, but it does explain those like little inconsistencies we see throughout canon. Yeah, I love that that image of Pike like running through the corridors to get to a message from the Admiral when, you know, Philippa just has to like walk 10 feet over and she's in her yeah. room with the telescope and the record player. I loved the shout out to, to Vinyl and Jazz in there. I thought that was really great. Yeah. Did the Annex 01 have a ready room? I don't think so. I think the uh, captain's quarter just kind of acted as one because okay. it was also such a smaller ship. You didn't have to really get from one point to another. Um, any other thoughts about what we learned from the reading? Yeah. Well, what do you what do you feel you can take away from the plot here? I got a lot of sense of teamwork, um, especially with like the relationship pairs. Like everyone kind of had to work together to accomplish their tasks. Um, Pike and Georgiou definitely had to like come together. And like resolve their differences to get what they needed done. Burnham and Spock, like Burnham especially, had to resolve her hangups about a mind meld with Spock um, in order to save the day. Um, the same could be said for um, Saru and Una, like down on the planet. They had to work together to solve the hieroglyphs down in the, mm-hmm. the caves. Yeah, the thing I found most interesting about the two of them is that there was almost like a a romantic connection. I don't know if she had it. It was like hints. Yeah, like hinted at. And Saru is saying, you know, if she were a Kelpian, he'd be married to her or something. I thought yeah. that was that was interesting because on Discovery thus far, I haven't seen Saru uh, in, you know, portrayed in the light of, you know, ever even thinking about that. He's always, you know, focusing on what the danger is and what the mission is and his duty. You don't even think necessarily of him thinking romantically. So I thought that was interesting that he was so intrigued by Commander Una. Yeah. Well, and on Discovery, we're recording this on the 21st. So it, we haven't even seen any female Kelpians on the show yet. That's true. That's true. We have seen the uh, tragedy of Ganglia being eaten at dinner, though. So shudder. Yeah. I don't know how she stomached that. So how do you think the uh, the canon would be affected by this story? I don't know if it would affect canon too much because it seems to be set up in a way that canon actually affected it more so than it would affect canon. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think um, I, I think this is great because it came out so early on in the run and we didn't have a lot of information about these characters. I think this actually sets you up in a good place that when you finish this book, you're ready to see Michael and Philippa in the desert you know, trying to rescue the arachnid species. Yeah, definitely. I went back and watched the pilots of Discovery after reading this book just to see, like, how it all 
piece together. So with that, I think we should move into our next segment, which is uh, Shelve It, our novel wrap-up and final thoughts. I wasn't aware you indulged in the literature of fantasy. Light reading is considered relaxing, Captain. So Marty, what do you feel the theme of this novel has been? I don't know if I picked up a particular theme from the novel. I mean, the only thing I could think of was like teamwork from the last segment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got the exact same thing. I, I thought there was just an overall theme of of partnership and yeah. um, the value of communication because there's a, a breakdown of communication between the colonists and the Starfleet personnel in orbit. I think there's a lot of foreshadowing in all of that that leads into Battle of the Binary Stars. Yeah, absolutely. One big thing that I wanted to point out about this book is that although it's not considered canon... I think it's the first book in a series that's going to be very close to canon, like as close to close to considered canon as it could possibly get. Yeah, I remember them saying that at Star Trek Las Vegas on their panel that, you know, they treated it as such, even if the fans don't treat it as canon, they're going to treat it you know, as close as they can. And I think something that's really interesting, a little bit of trivia that comes out of this is that... Um, David Mack was given a lot of freedom to write character bios. He was uh, given, you know, certain ones like Burnham and Saru, the ones who were going to be the leads on the series. But uh, in the case of like um, Gant and Detmer, he actually developed them. He wrote their backstories. He wrote them in as characters on here. And then the showrunners for Discovery were so impressed by those characters that they ended up becoming characters in the series. Yeah, which is really cool. And personally, for me, I, yeah, for me, I think um, Detmer is like the completely underutilized character on Discovery right now. I want to know so much more about her and I want to see her more. I want, I want her to talk more. I think she's just really intriguing. Detmer's such an interesting character, like with that faceplate on her face. Like we don't, we don't even know what that does. So definitely an underutilized character there. And also the fact that she's got a seemingly fine relationship with Burnham here, and you know, post Battle of the Binary Stars, of course, she doesn't talk to her. She she barely acknowledges her existence on the Discovery. Yeah, true. Oh, and you know what else we got a lot of in uh, Desperate Hours? Yeah, Baby Daft Punk. Oh, oh yes. Character from the pilots. Yes, I, I. That's right. I forgot that nickname. Which is, which is not actually like she's not actually a robot. It's actually a VR helmet uh-huh. that that character wears to navigate the ship. Yeah, and she's got some pretty sarcastic lines in there too. I thought that was funny because everyone thought she was an android, and she's just like throwing shade at people on the bridge. The bridge crew in this book is on fire. Yes. <laughs> They are great. I think I liked the bridge crew of this book more than I liked Captain Pike and Georgiou, actually. Yeah, and, and I thought it was interesting that um, cameo from uh, Admiral Anderson in there, too, because it really flows through to the way his character is acting in the show pilot. He's just, I mean, he is like, uh, I'm going to do uh, hashtag Admiral Necheyev 100 years early. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> you don't mess with Admiral Anderson. You don't mess with Admiral Nechev either. Exactly. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, Marty, is let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the Sarek connection, because uh, even though he's not actually physically there, Sarek casts a really long shadow in this book. He does. He really does. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I just I think that it's really interesting that you have you know, this hint of what we're going to see 
with Burnham's uh, Katra connection to Sarek. Uh, it, that doesn't really fully hold up for me as far as canon goes because she is so shocked when she first experiences the Katra connection with him when she's in the brig in Battle of the Binary Stars. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I, I'm not a huge fan of that being placed in there, but I, I think that that was an interesting device to allow both Spock and Burnham to start airing their feelings about Sarek. And boy, are there some feelings there. Yeah. Um, Sarek's not really a stand-up guy, is he? Yeah. It kind of uh, upends that whole vision that we had of Mark Leonard's Sarek because you know, I always thought of Sarek being like the great diplomat, the uniter, and it turns out that in the people closest to him, he's basically thrown them as far apart as he can. And I know there are a lot of fans out there who are a lot of like gung ho about Sarek, but I've never particularly cared for the guy. He's a jerk to Spock in Journey to Babel. He's a jerk to uh, Captain Picard in The Next Generation. I mean, and he, in this book, he's just like. He makes all the wrong choices when it comes to parenting. Yeah, it's it's funny for me because my um, greatest relationship to Sarek was always in Star Trek Four, where he's kind of like that honored diplomat. He doesn't do anything wrong in that. But when you say that, of course, that makes a great point that he's, uh, you know, somewhat messed up in things, which is interesting for a logic-based Vulcan. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you, how would you how would you rate Desperate Hours? Four out of five deltas. Nice, nice. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I'm giving it uh, warp nine point eight. Warp nine point eight. Yeah. Oh, it's it's about to cross that threshold. You're exceeding the warp speed limit, sir. It's going to go trans warp eventually. I, I got to tell you, this book to me felt like the television show. It felt like seamless. It didn't feel like a you know extended universe piece. It felt like it was from the same writers' room, which it obviously was. They were working together, but I think yeah. it establishes Discovery in every sense as being a new era of Trek, not just on television but also in its writing. And for that, it just makes me really excited because we have you know numerous more books coming in this Discovery series. I'm excited for those other books. These books are giving Discovery an episodic feel to them with the way uh, the stories are going. Like, I could easily see this story being made into an, a standalone episode of Discovery and it fitting in just fine with the existing universe. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's funny, too, because there's kind of this balance that I think a lot of Trek fans want – uh, of, you know, episodic and serialized. And of course, you have shows like TOS and TNG, where they're completely episodic, very few serialized story arcs. And you have like DS9 and Discovery, where it's heavily serialized. And, you know, in Discovery's case, you can you can barely escape the main plot. We've only had maybe two episodes that weren't completely about that main story arc. So I think these are going to provide a nice relief for the people who want more episodic. Yeah, if you're a fan of the characters of Discovery, but you want more episodic structure, this is definitely the book for you. Yeah, and I want to give a um, heads up to all of our listeners that uh, in the near future, not our next one coming right up, but in the near future, we are going to be featuring Drastic Measures, which is the next Discovery book, but that actually hasn't been released yet at the time of this recording, so we're probably going to get one episode in before we get to that. But if you get a chance, pre-order it, get ready to listen to it on Audible, whatever you have to do, it's coming out in early February of 2018. 
I think that covers the Shelvet segment. So, um, you know, this has been great. This is our first true discussion on here. We're very excited to have this podcast, and we hope everybody out there is enjoying it. We would move into some fan feedback now, but we don't have any yet. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, of course, this being our first podcast, there won't be any feedback from viewers. But from now on, we really want to hear from you. Uh, If you want to leave a two-minute message with your thoughts for our next show, uh, please call 609-512-5527. That's 609-512-LLAP. Again, please keep your message to two minutes or less, but we really want to hear what you have to say. And with that said, let's uh, tell everyone what we're going to be talking about on our next episode. Wow, is that a book? Next week, we'll be talking about Grounded, Star Trek The Next Generation, book 25, by David Bischoff. Oh, I'm excited for that. That is a classic. And and it just goes to show that we're going to explore the entire expanded universe here. We're going to go back to some of the really old paperbacks. We're going to cover brand new ones as they come out. I think we're going to have a great discussion. I agree. So if you have a copy of this, or you want to pop on eBay or on Amazon Kindle, however you think you can get a hold of it, grab a copy, give it a read-through, and give us your thoughts we really want to hear about it as always links to upcoming selections can be found in the show notes and on our twitter at reading trek nice nice now before we finish today's podcast let's let everyone know how they can get a hold of us to continue the conversation marty how can people get a hold of you um you can get a hold of me at time travel marty um also available in the unofficial star trek las vegas facebook group yeah same here i am on twitter at william g conlin and i am on the unofficial group as well i need to do a huge shout out to heather jeff and jesse who are the administrators in there and specifically to heather and jeff for everything that they've done creating this tricorder network we are so excited to be a part of it now yes yes we are absolutely so you can uh, visit us online at readingtrek.thetricordertransmissions.com, on Twitter at readingtrek, and please support this vibrant fan-based podcast network by visiting patreon.com slash thetricordertransmissions. For a small donation on there, you can get access to exclusive content, and you'd be really supporting the administrators of this fantastic site. And with that, Captain Picard wants us to let him read in peace. I will leave you now to your book. That is all I ask.